Welcome back to the Marvel Movie Minute, a daily podcast in which we dig in deep to analyze the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time. I'm Andy Nelson from thenextreel.com. And I'm Pete Wright, also from thenextreel.com. All right, we are again talking about John Favreau's 2008 film Iron Man, back at the beginning of this MCU. Today, we are digging into Minute 2, which starts with the military convoy chugging along through Afghanistan and ends with one of the soldiers starting to ask Tony a question, or so we think. I think of you as a soldier first, Andy. I would, if I was at all dubious about watching this movie uh, one minute at a time when you brought this idea to us, uh, this minute actually makes me feel good about our decision to go forward with it because it's so good. It's so good. It's a minute and it's the second minute in the stinking movie. And our introduction to Tony Stark is perfect. What's great about the intro to Tony is, well, first, I mean, we should say, you know, we, we spend a little time outside of the uh, the Humvees. We'll get back to that. But the intro to Tony is his glass of alcohol. <laughs> and we are looking at a close-up of his hand as he's holding this glass in front of him. And then the camera tilts up and rack focuses to the soldier sitting next to him before we even cut to Robert Downey Jr., and knowing the history of Iron Man and Tony Stark and how he was a horrible alcoholic and he is, has had major issues with his alcoholism through a number of the uh, story threads, it works brilliantly to start that way. But also, even if you don't have that sense of the backstory of, of who Tony Stark is, just seeing that this rack of Humvees rolling down the road and here is somebody sitting in there with a, a, a nice glass of, of alcohol. Even if you don't have that backstory of who Tony Stark is, before we cut to him, you still get a sense of who Tony Stark is, right? Oh, it's perfect. It's perfect with the glasses and the suit uh, and the way that these soldiers... Uh, in the truck with him are looking at him with such fear and clearly awe, intimidation, admiration, all of those things. They're terrified, uh, these kids. And he knows it and he plays off it perfectly. The comedy is just great. And I, I don't know. This is one of those things, you know, when uh, uh, I can't see now because of the rule, I can't talk about it. I want to talk about it. I'm not going to talk about it. it. It's as if they were channeling Robert Downey Jr. when they wrote the part for in the comics <laughs> for Iron Man, right? That is, that's perfect. That's absolutely true. And that's why in it, it ended up being like the perfect casting to have Robert yeah. Downey Jr. playing Tony Stark because one, he's always been, um, since, since I knew him an actor, I mean, his father, uh, of course was already in the industry. And so he's been acting since a young age and grew up in the industry and always has seemed kind of like that Tony Stark, Not maybe not the scientific genius or any of that, but certainly the playboy, you know, the one who abuses substances. That right. really seemed uh, close to home for Robert Downey Jr. And um, it, it just, it fits so brilliantly. And it's it's kind of exciting to actually see him popping into this as an actor who had gone down some dark roads and sometimes you're like wondering if he was ever going to find a way to resurface again, you know? Oh, absolutely. Uh, and and this was a movie that changed his life, right? I mean, it changed his life. It certainly changed the trajectory of his career uh, and absolutely changed uh, the, the way he interacted with the public. As soon as he recognized that there were kids 
that were going to be looking up to him in this role and kids that would see him after this transformation into a superhero who are going to be modeling their lives on him. The dude changed and uh, I've got a lot of respect for that. When was it that Robert Downey Jr. Uh, was arrested for he was on something and he broke into some house and fell asleep in some kid's bed? And he did. And yeah. The parents called the cops. Yeah. When, when was <laughs> that? That was good. That was well. So it was 96. It was the middle of 96. And he had already been arrested for possession of heroin and cocaine and <laughs> an unloaded 357 Magnum handgun while speeding down Sunset Boulevard. It was a month later while he was on parole. Uh, that he Jeez. he trespassed right he went into this to a neighbor's home uh, while he was high and fell asleep in one of the beds and so you know three years of probation lots of drug testing this was in the late 90s right 90s 97 uh he missed a a, a drug test and went to jail for six months uh in in la and what's crazy is he's always been working like that didn't stop him he didn't have like a series of years where he was doing nothing no right? he's arrested I mean, again in 99 for the same thing yeah, yeah yeah exactly i mean he was always having issues but he's always popping up in stuff i mean and he had had a huge boom in his career i guess you could say in the early 90s when he was getting an oscar nomination for chaplin and he's just in a ton of stuff and i'm always amazed that he had such a busy career um and in a movie we love in the mid 2000s kiss kiss bang bang which is a fantastic film uh, but really it's this film that is the one that pushed him into a totally different realm of his career and popularity and it's just amazing that that it kind of i mean this is a guy who had been acting since the uh you know as a kid in the 70s and and here he was in in 2008 turning into this mega actor because he's in a superhero movie you know and i just have to say not to completely belabor all of the the drug stuff but he was he was still in and out of jail in and out of conviction uh for drugs through 2001 2002 uh when he was on ally mcbeal uh, on tv i don't know if you remember that did you ever oh, watch yeah, the ally mcbeal right. show right he was her love I, interest I and that. he was he was facing four years in prison while signing a contract for for eight more uh, guest shots on ally mcbeal like the guy had had completely lost rational sense of his own trajectory and and that is not uh, a long uh sort of stretch between alan beale 2001 facing four years in jail and and you know this movie he was going to do uh melinda and melinda with woody allen but uh he couldn't get insurance for it because of all of his his stuff so he was he, i mean he was not a bankable actor in the mid 2000s like not even close uh, so that that he made this kind of turnaround is extraordinary. That's why he was in a lot of smaller parts or indie films, um, things that, you know, it, you probably didn't need to worry about that sort of stuff as much. And I think that's largely how he was kind of just getting by with with everything that he was doing. I have to say it's it's a thrill seeing him in the role of Iron Man because he just fit the part so well. And that's I remember, I mean, I didn't know any of the Iron Man backstory when I first saw the movie. So I didn't know he had been an alcoholic and all this. But he, again, going back to what I said earlier, he seemed like the perfect actor to play a a rich playboy who falls into this whole thing. And and that fit really nicely. And I liked that side of Robert Downey Jr. And I think the way that the screenwriters wrote this opening where you meet him and you have this group of soldiers really nervous about being with him in the in the Humvee, uh, it, it's very much this this sense of, uh, you know, this this big personality 
who uh, is very comfortable kind of helping these people get through their uncomfortableness with him and and working through it and and just turning a place that's kind of a little awkward and and intimidating into a place that's fun and and we we get that over the course of this minute and, and that he is actually not just fun but capable of trucking with them at their level right at the level that they bring the soldiers level right he'll joke with them he'll be uh misogynist with them he will uh, you know he's he's willing to uh you know sort of just kind of fall in he's kind of a chameleon character and that's that's sort of what we get out of iron man this guy who is capable of donning the suit that he needs for uh, the the circumstances that's what he is here right he might be wearing the suit and carrying the drink but he's putting he's putting on the suit to sit in that truck the the kind of emotional intellectual suit to sit in that truck yeah we do meet in the humvee at this point we meet pratt ramirez and jimmy Pratt is played by Garrett Noel, who is, uh, he is sitting up in the passenger seat. Uh, he is an airman first class. Uh, Jimmy is in the back seat, uh, sitting next to Tony. Um, young little Jimmy, played by Kevin Foster. He's an airman. And Ramirez is a senior airman. Uh, she is played by Eileen Weisinger, and she is driving the Humvee. What did you think of uh, of these three? How do they play opposite Robert Downey Jr.? Well, they're perfect, right? They're fawning fan fan people, right? Uh and and that uh you know that that first joke, you know, is is can I can is it cool if I ask you a question? Yes, it is cool. Uh is <laughs> uh, it, you know, it's, I mean, how many times have you said tried to work that into conversation because it's such a great line. Right. The answer is always. You always try to work that into a conversation because it's a great line. And it says a lot about you, I think. I think Tony probably pulls it off better than I do. But uh, you know, it tells a story. Uh, so they, the, the language, the vernacular, the banter between them is perfect. Uh, you know, good God, you're a woman. Uh, is, it, it's, a, it's not a thing that you say to people. But the fact that she smiles, the fact that his delivery is so perfect, the thing that, uh, you know, they, they're able to play off uh, that as a, as a line of introduction, and uh, it doesn't come off as something that is as wildly insulting as it should be. <laughs> right, because it's Tony and because he right. is pulling it off. And, right. and maybe in, in the days of Me Too, like, it's, it's not going to work quite as well. We can discuss that more tomorrow's episode as well. Uh, and see what we think. Yeah. Um, but I do think that these three um, play off of him nicely. Um, Garrett Noel, he is the, again, he's the passenger. He also ended up in Cowboys and Aliens with Favreau right. uh, at the helm. Uh, but really kind of a, a small career so far. Hasn't done a lot of acting, although it looks like he has been doing some directing and has two projects in post-production right now that he wrote and directed. So I'm curious to see uh, what happens with those. Um, I, are you familiar with him from anything? No, any I'm not. Movies? No, that's that. That's all news. Uh, all news. Did you see me. Cowboys and Aliens? I, I, I missed that one. I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I just missed it. You know? Yeah, that's very that's very gracious. But I'm gonna out myself, Andy, uh, with this particular movie. That not only did I see it, I quite enjoyed it, and it's in my collection. Oh, really? I am I am one of a couple of people I think that saw that movie and and actually uh, quite enjoyed their time with it. So yeah, that's me. Wow, there you are. I'm, what of it? Okay, hey. Next is Cowboys and Indi Indians uh, Movie Minute. I think that's great. As soon as we're done with this. <laughs> as soon as we finish these ones. Do you remember <laughs> uh, Garrett in that film? He played uh, a gang member 
I'm sure that helps you pinpoint. I, I regret to tell you, I don't. I don't remember Garrett, the gang member. <laughs> Oh, so funny. I, I, maybe I haven't watched uh, watched the movie quite as closely as I need to. Uh, right, right. Uh, Kevin Foster is Jimmy. Um, he was in Jurassic World as an ACU gunner. Do, do you remember him? <laughs> I don't remember him, unfortunately. This this may have been their big roles. I you know they they have good strong lines. They're funny. Well, he's done a lot of stunt work as well, a lot of stunt performing. And uh, yeah. so I am wondering, uh, although he didn't do stunts in this, but he did do it in Live Free or Die Hard, which is a film that we talked about on our other show. We sure did. Um, and in X-Men First Class, Transformers, Dark of the Moon. So he's done a bunch of... Oh, and Sharknado. Look at that. Oh, right. Right. Now I remember. <laughs> right. Uh, but no, he has, he's acted a lot too. And, you know, other war movie, he did Jarhead. And then right after this, he did Drag Me to Hell, which I think is fantastic. But so I've seen stuff that he's been in, but I I think that this little eager eyed Jimmy um, is the way that I remember him. I, I like, I don't think I could pinpoint him from something else just from this role. What about uh, Eileen Weisinger as uh, Ramirez? She is another somewhat familiar face, but not super familiar. And so I, I don't think it's probably somebody that I remember very specifically from a film. Uh, and I mean, looking through her credits, uh, you know, things like Ghosts of Mars and, and Planet of the Apes. She was one of the apes in that. But again, she also does a lot of stunt work. Yeah. She's a stunt, uh, a stunt actress and a stunt coordinator. In fact, she does some utility stunts in Iron Man 2. Eileen here looks exactly like Jeanette Goldstein, uh, who's a, a fantastic uh, actor. And, and we know her probably most as Vasquez uh, in Aliens. Uh, but uh, she's terrific. She was in Terminator uh, 2. She's, I mean, she's just, she's great. Uh, and so I, I I saw her here and I just, I knew that that the age just wasn't going to work out in my head, but I, I, I find that a fond reflection. Yeah, right. No, she, I, I do like, I, I like her. And you're right. The, the Vasquez comparison is actually an apt one because there is a little uh, hint of that. Maybe that it's smile, just, you know, right? The, that Vasquez smile. Right, not maybe not the Vasquez attitude. Right, but. and she's and she's in in you know, like soldier uh, gear. Right, she's in camo, and uh, there's something about that. We do have one other person in this minute, although I'll be damned if I can figure out who it is. <laughs> it is the man walking his goats that they pass early on in the minute. It looks like he has about three goats that he's walking with, and uh, yeah, the the, <laughs> the Humvees uh, race past him. And uh, that's it. So a uh, mystery extra who gets that that fleeting moment of fame as he's <laughs> as the Humvees pass him about uh, that's three a, seconds. That's a four second. Two, three, yeah, four seconds. Yeah, that's a four, yeah. se- four second. So you go frame yeah. by frame and you will see him. I don't think I ever noticed him. I didn't until, until you started talking about it. Yeah. particular minute. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's very funny. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, they continue driving around in, in Lone Pine, a.k.a. Uh, the Kunar province in Afghanistan. But um, you made you said something last time uh, about the music about Back in Black by ACDC. And uh, in, in fact, it appears that they are listening to it in the truck. We now know that it is actually diegetic music. It's playing in scene. It's something that these uh, these people are listening to in the Humvee. Look, you just taught a big word. That's possibly my favorite uh, movie-making term. Diegetic? Diegetic sound. Yeah. Sound that originates in the universe of the film. Well done, Andy. It's, it's, a, it's a good word. We like it here. 
you're a gentle teacher. <laughs> what do you think of the song? Do you like uh, ACDC? Do you like Back in Black? Uh, I'm I'm a a big fan uh, from from back in the day. Uh, you know, high school ACDC was big for me in high school, uh, and so yeah. I mean, I heard this movie, and there was a or I heard the the song, and I was I immediately felt. Uh, Right at home. Were you uh, were you a big ACDC uh, or were you? Uh... I was not ever uh, into kind of the heavier metal when I was younger. I it took me. I don't, I don't know. I feel like uh, my parents really were into the uh, the granola earthy sorts of music. So I never heard music like this. Yeah. It was always like John Denver and Burl Ives and things like that. That would have been. Very it's a different. totally different world. <laughs> it's so, a song, uh, and and plus, you know, you know my as these trucks careening across the see that version of this film. No, so it's funny because I felt like I did not get a good musical education, and so uh, and just like comics, I was like, well, I, I'm going to avoid it because it's the unknown. And it wasn't until after college that I really started exploring music. And I had heard ACDC and I'd heard their songs and stuff like so I knew who they were. It's just I didn't really listen. And so I finally, after college, finally bought uh, Back in Black, the album. And uh, I was like, how did I not have this in my life earlier? Yeah. It's such a great album. And uh, especially this song in particular, Back in Black, um, is just, I mean, it is, it's just one of the greats. So it's a perfect song. Uh, to to put in here i just i love the music and i i think that favreau does us a favor by using it to to uh, kind of create the atmosphere well and i love what what he does here to assign musical tastes to a character right and and that is that's the the gift of using this song and the rest of the score and the closing song all of these to me feel at the end of this movie like i just listened to Tony Stark's favorite mixtape. <laughs> right. Do you know what I mean? Like, and that, that feels as much a part of his identity as, uh, as, as anything else as the suit as the booze, anything else as the Ray-Bans. It's all, it's all part of this persona. That's right. Absolutely. That's right. Yeah. No, I, 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 I love the way that all of it ties together. I, I do think the boom box, I mean, it just makes me laugh seeing that little boom box and remembering the days when we all had little boom boxes like that in our rooms. And, you know, back when we would have CDs that we'd actually put in them or before that cassettes that we'd put in them. That's right. That's right. Burn them out. Exactly. In fact, this is a boombox with the little CD player on top. I probably had one that looked just like it. When did the MP4s really start kicking in? And just like the, the like playing on your iPods. When did the iPods came out? It was it was early two thousands, right, or mid two thousands? Oh, geez, I want to say uh, two thousand two. Uh, the the first iPod, uh, but I I could be very wrong. No, it was October twenty third two thousand one and so the whole rip mix burn campaign do you remember that apple's rip mix burn campaign yeah they were late uh apple was late to the the mp3 they'd already the mp3 format had already been um you know out and about um and apple is was accused of copying many others uh in their efforts to uh to jump into this market but Man, as soon as iTunes, the iPod, and then shortly after the the iTunes Store, that changed the market for for music. I can so that makes this sequence so much more special. The fact that we're listening to, uh, you know, to physical media in Afghanistan. It probably rings true because they're probably buying cheap stuff that can be destroyed over there. Yeah, you know, off of some market, and and so it's probably. I doubt that they flew over with this. You know, they probably bought it, and so it is probably an aftermarket thing that had been pilfered on some street corner. So 
I had uh, I had another little bit of screenplay info that I wanted to pass your way uh, real yeah. quick before we yeah. get to the end of this episode. Um, so I I was we were talking about how New Line had the rights to the property of Iron Man and they were developing it with Nick Cassavetes directing. I didn't realize this, but actually going all the way back to April of 1990, Universal Studios bought the rights to develop Iron Man for a film. And Stuart Gordon was on to direct it, and it was going to be a low-budget version of the character. And I don't know what they were wanting to do with it, but apparently they had the rights until 96, when 20th Century Fox got the rights. And then um, the following year, 97, Nicolas Cage actually expressed interest in, in playing Tony Stark. And uh, luckily that didn't happen. Wow. Uh, I, I can only imagine what that would be like. You know, I think he went through his... He, he went, went on to, to Superman, want, right? Yeah, right. Superman and Batman. He didn't even want to play Batman for a while. And I one think he day, just wants to play everything. Nicholas he finally Cage. got Ghost Rider. <laughs> he got Ghost Rider. That's right. And so did we. <laughs> and so did we. And then September 98, Tom Cruise actually expressed interest in, in starring as Iron Man and producing it as well. So uh, very interesting to see kind of the journey that it went on. And what they were doing, um, Stan Lee co-wrote a story with uh, Jeff Vinter, this is the Tom Cruise era. It was a, creating a new science fiction origin for the character, including super several inventive suspense sequences and showcasing a villain who was a giant head in a floating chair named Modoc. Oh, Modoc! See, now there's a character I know. I don't, but I feel like I've seen that character, the giant head in a floating chair. Well, you certainly have. It's also kind of a central character in some of the video game. Uh, uh, they've they've used it a bunch. It's it's been uh, around. Okay. So let me just read this to you because it's it's just an interesting journey that the script took. Although Lee and Vinter, Vinter's screenplay was credited by Tom Rothman, president of production at Fox, with being the screenplay that finally made him understand the character, Jeffrey Kane, who had written Goldeneye, was hired to rewrite Vinter and Lee's script. And then director Quentin Tarantino was approached in October 99 to write and direct Iron Man. With no deal made, Fox eventually sold the rights to New Line the following December uh, reasoning that although the Vinter Lee script was strong, the studio had too many Marvel superheroes in development. And as uh, this was the quote, we can't make them all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, huh. And that so New Line had it. Uh, it was being uh, developed by Ted Elliott, Terry Rossio, uh, names we are familiar with, along with Tim McCanley's. Um, that's and then McCanley's script used the idea of a Nick Fury cameo to set up his own film, uh, Fury's own film, and that was the origin of the idea of bringing uh, bringing Fury in as a little cameo. Which uh, I, we don't, I, but we don't know anything about, about that. that? We don't know anything about that because of rules. We don't know anything about that, but we do know that that was an idea that they had back in two thousand. That's fantastic. It's yeah. foresight. Anything else in this minute? That's all I've got, man. Let's move on to minute three. All right. Well, that's it for episode two, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Make sure you subscribe to the show for free at marvelmovieminute.com. Join us over on our Discord chat room and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at The Next Reel. And if you like what we do and want to support us and in turn get some cool stuff, become a patron over at patreon.com slash The Next Reel. Until next time, true believers. True believers.